Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Jason Hollands, Managing Director at Tilney. Star manager Neil Woodford has built up a very strong reputation over 30 years. But over the last three calendar years, his largest fund, LF Woodford Equity Income, has underperformed. This has led to a number of investors pulling money out of the fund and brokers removing it from their buy lists. So in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle, we've set out the case for and against the fund. Taha, you set out the arguments for ditching LF Woodford Equity Income Fund. So what would be the main reasons for doing this? Hi, Leonor. Yes, I did. So there's probably three parts to my argument. Uh, Firstly, starting with performance and stock picking. There's some issues around governance as well that I would like to that which I discuss, and a kind of change in infrastructure uh, based on uh, Neil now managing the funds from his own firm, having kind of a, a lower support amount of support than what he had at Invesco before he left. Just starting with performance, so over three years the fund is down seven percent. Uh, the FTSE All Share is up thirty four percent, and the average for the Investment Association UK or company sector is twenty seven percent. So. This isn't marginal underperformance we're talking about here. This is going in reverse. Since launch, it's worth mentioning this as well because I will come on to how the performance split into two parts. Um, since launch, it's actually returned 11%, but this is still versus 33% for the FTSE All Share. So you can see some kind of material underperformance here. Okay, so why has the fund underperformed? And this is this is what I mean by kind of breaking it down. So if we look at the first three years of the fund, so it launched in June 2014. So the first three years, absolutely fantastic. Returned 38% versus 25% for the FTSE All Share. Now, since then, to date, the fund is down 20% versus 5% for the FTSE All Share. So again, you can see how, yes, the UK equities have struggled generally. We can see that with only 5% return over what is almost a kind of two-year period. But the fund is down 20 uh, And that is down to two things, uh, which I've been trying to put my finger on. One is a change in strategy, which kind of was implemented post-2016, June 2016, when we had the um, EU referendum, uh, well, membership of the EU referendum. And since then, and this has been a discussion we've had quite a lot on this podcast and in the magazine, UK equities, particularly the ones that have been facing the domestic economy, have looked very cheap. Now, uh, Mr. Woodford has talked about this quite a lot. He's been very bullish on the UK economy. He's been very bullish on companies that uh, face the UK economy and derive their returns from the UK economy. And he's been kind of changing the composition of his fund that was there from the launch of 2014 to now. And this was the kind of trigger point towards these kind of very cheap companies that face the UK economy. Uh, And examples are some of the house builders he added in Lloyd's Banking uh, Group and kind of things like that. Now, that's, that's been fine. A lot of people have done that. A lot of people agree with his position that these companies are very uh, undervalued. We've talked about this many times, and a lot of managers have done this. But there's been a, there's been a lot of stock blobs as well. So individual company positions, big positions in his portfolio that he has made where the share prices have really struggled or there's been a kind of corporate event that has led to material a material fall in the share price. And that's kind of the second part as to what's really affected this uh, this performance. Okay. And, and did any holdings in particular cause problems? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you. There's there's five or six we can go through, but I, I won't. I, I do mention these in the piece in the magazine, uh, but we'll start with Provident Financial. So this is kind of a doorstep lender. Um, the, this the, Its share price fell like 75% within the space of a week. It was a 6% holding of the fund, so that's a, a huge impact there. 
Also, Capita was a 3, 3.2% holding in the fund when its share price was trading close to kind of £10. It now trades at £1.20, but it's still a 1% holding, but it's waiting in the portfolio as a combination of the share price fall and also probably uh, Mr. Woodford kind of revisiting his um, holding. Imperial Brands, um, a, a kind of stalwart of the fund, has been in his Vesco funds, has been in the Woodford Investment Management Funds. Huge driver of outperformance in the last decade. Still a kind of 7% holding in the fund, but its share price has fallen 38%. Yeah, I think the issue is, I mean, there's obviously a few individual problems. The overall issue is that he's invested in UK domestic facing companies, but then quite a few other funds have too. Um, um, and have they not suffered as well? This is really the key point for me. Um, he isn't alone in taking this strategy, and, and as I mentioned before, but no one has done anywhere near as badly. So if we look at um, kind of the chart of his returns in mid-2017, his performance just tails off. The kind of FTSE all share, the average for the, the IA sectors, they all kind of tally on experiencing volatility and his, his just goes downwards. So since the referendum, only four funds have lost capital. He runs two of them. One is a kind of private mandate he runs for a wealth manager and then he's down 6%. The FTSE 250, which is full of kind of domestic stocks, small stocks, ones that we've talked about being undervalued, is up 21%. So you can see this isn't... This is more than just him having an out-of-favour style. This is, there's a material problem here as well. OK, but Mr Woodford's had um, at least two other periods of underperformance because he is a contrarian investor and he does go against the herd. And guess what? He's bounced back very strongly when um, everybody's made the wrong call. So um, isn't this likely to happen again? Always a chance, absolutely. I never, never, will not rule that out. And yeah, he is a contrarian investor and it's done so well for investors in the past, not taking away from his long-term record. The fact that he avoided tech in, in 2000, avoided banks in 2008, this is kind of the foundation of the long-term track record that we talk about when we talk about Neil Woodford. But yeah, so the question is now, is um, is, is the weight worth the risk? Like you have to factor in different things. He's, he's wiped out his long-term track record in the last three years. He's in a completely different place in terms of as a manager. He has, he has much less support than he did at Invesco. There is a, an issue, and this has been talked about when people, kind of wealth managers and buy lists have been dropping him, talking about whether he has anyone really questioning his investment decisions. And that is something which, you know, it's a, very, it's a very soft thing to discuss, but it's quite important. Do you have anyone challenging the opinions that you're making? You know, would he have made a seven a, a large bet in Provident Vivantial had someone gone, hold on, this this could go wrong? I, I mean, I'm just picking examples here, but it, it is a thing. There's also governance as well. Um, we, we talked a couple of weeks ago, well, maybe three weeks ago, about the transfer of unlisted stocks from his equity income fund to his investment trust, something he's been doing quite a lot because he's had to manage the amount of unlisted stocks he's allowed to have by the FCA in his um, equity income fund. Now, I can understand why he's done this and everyone can. It kind of makes sense. He has rules he has to follow. But when you start making investment decisions based on rules and based on kind of just making sure you reach a, a kind of arbitrary target it doesn't sit well with me also you have to really ask the question is if he wasn't running the investment trust and he wasn't running the investment fund that was selling the assets to the trust would this have happened and the answer is probably no there wasn't there aren't two independent parties that would really engage in this kind of transaction for the reason that they engaged in and that that to me screams a really big governance problem and that i don't think he would get away with that at any other firm other than his own firm and again that's something i think you really need to consider Jason, um, what do you think? Should investors stick with or ditch Elif Woodford Equity Income Fund? Sure. Well, I tend to agree with much of what Taha's just uh, said and that criticism of the way the fund's been managed. And um, we we took the fund off our buy list uh, some while back, and I personally would would not hold this fund. I think, look, you know, 
in the all fund managers will go through periods of poor performance that 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 happens to all fund managers even the best but i think if you look at those previous times he went through patches of poor performance that was largely because he was not owning parts of the market that were in vogue in fashion because he felt that they were overvalued here there are just numerous stocks have blown up and you know my worry with the fund now is actually around the liquidity of it and yes uh, Neil Wood has an immense fan club of people who've done very well from over the years but perhaps people need to realize that this is a very different fund to the sorts of funds he was running in the past you know uh, throughout most of his career has been built on on investing in large blue chip income generating companies and, and medium sized businesses this fund now has very high exposure to early stage small illiquid companies a, a, a very high exposure to unquoted companies and i just don't think an open-ended fund is the right place to be holding those sorts of stocks but also a lot of aimlisted companies that are tiny where his positions will be very very liquid and my concern is the fund has already gone from 10 billion to 4.4 billion so it shrunk quite dramatically it's a really tough to manage an open-ended fund when you're having to cash out holdings to to return money to investors on a regular basis it's a really difficult environment for all uk managers at the moment because uh, investors have now been consistently selling out of UK funds for the last 22 months on the trot. And I think, you know, the problem is, uh, the question that one must ask yourself now is, actually, is he able to manage the fund uh, as effectively as he might like to if he's constantly having to try and find uh, cash to return to, to shareholders and of course you can't readily sell your liquid holdings and that may be one of the reasons why the uh, number of listed companies i think there are only about three FTSE 100 companies in the portfolio has reduced so dramatically okay um but are there any reasons as to why it might be a bad idea to sell this fund now well uh, so uh, there's a lot of talk about um he's had this contrarian view on the uk economy and actually i tend tend to agree with that i think uk shares are good value but actually if you look at the portfolio and the very high exposure to both unquote unquoted companies but also areas like uh, biotech companies it's not actually a given that there would be that, 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 that those parts of the portfolio would benefit from a brexit bounce because your unquoted companies are are not priced on a daily mark to market basis the reason you might stay in is clearly some of these unquoted companies um, over time will hopefully ipo and um, that's potentially when you will see um, the, the return realised on, on those companies. So they're, they're, you know, there are certainly companies in there. Oxford Nanopore, I think, have just announced the intention to list in the ne- next 12 months. So if these companies are as exciting and valuable as the manager believes they are, then obviously selling now, you may actually miss out on the upside of that. So that's the reason for hanging on in there. But it could get tougher before it gets better. Hmm. I mean, are there any other potential catalysts that could improve its performance? There is quite a high exposure to UK house builders, so a rally in a sector like that would obviously uh, benefit the fund. But again, I think you have to come back to the fact, well, the, the, the outlook's quite uncertain, both for the economy, but also we could have a change of government with a new government that's actually prepared to be quite a, a lot more interventionist in regulating um, uh, areas like building and property. So uh, to my mind, it, there's quite a lot of risk in this. It could cut, bounce back really well. If you do see these domestically facing parts of the um, market, you know, rally very strongly. 
And if you start to see the IPO window open up again and some of these unquoted companies get listed. So those are the sorts of circumstances where the fund could return to form. But I think, you know, above all, the question mark is, um, you know, when are the outflows going to stabilise? And all the while, while the performance is so tough, it's difficult to see that happening. And that is going to be a real a real headwind for the fund. So if investors aren't particularly happy about investing in Ella Woodford equity income, what other equity income funds could they consider instead? Yeah, well, there are, there are obviously the equity income sector, there are, there's quite a, a number of you know, attractive and well-managed funds out there. Uh, I think for a much more conventional fund that's a little bit more pro- pragmatic in the way it's managed, Threadneedle UK equity income is a good core fund. TB Even Load Income is another fund that, uh, that that I like and is personally holding my, my eye. So it doesn't have, it doesn't focus quite so much on on the headline yield. It's looking for companies that can grow their yield. Or Jo Hambro UK Equity Income would be another one to consider. Okay, thank you, Jason. Some really good suggestions. And see this week's big theme in the fund section for our arguments and why you should stick with Ellif Woodford Equity Income. Another star manager who has built up a strong reputation is Alexander Darwell, manager of funds including Jupiter European. But earlier this week, asset manager Jupiter announced that Mr Darwell will be stepping down as manager of this fund by the end of this year. Taha, why is Alexander Darwell stepping down from Jupiter European? Most people are taking this as a kind of succession planning step towards retirement, which, again, when you look at it, is quite fair. So he's been running the, the, the Jupiter European Fund that you mentioned since 2001, has built up an incredibly loyal following, superb performance, joined Jupiter in 1995, and you know, he's been investing in or kind of analysing European equity since 1987. So it's, you know, it's, it's a fair time to perhaps think about trying something else. Um, but yeah, so it's going to be part of a plan to see him kind of weaned off the, his popularity, I suppose. Okay, now, um, um, he runs a number of funds, so what's going to happen to the other ones? Uh, slightly mixed bag here. So the Jupiter European Fund, as you mentioned, he's stepping back from this year. Jupiter European Growth, which is the same strategy, but is generally sold to non-UK clients. He'll be stepping back from that as well. However, he will be um, remaining as manager on the Jupiter European Opportunities Investment Trust. He's also going to be continuing to work for Jupiter and run uh, kind of direct mandates for pension funds running the same strategy as well. Okay, so big question. Um, who is going to run Jupiter European? An, an interesting choice. It's uh, kind of it sparked some um, interesting debate. So the manager is called Mark Nichols. Um, listeners and readers might be familiar with him. He's co-manager of the Threadneedle European Select Fund. He's been there since 2016. It's another popular fund alongside uh, the Jupiter option. He's ran the BMO Select European Equity Fund for four years, from 2011 to 2015. When we look at his performance since 2011, when he started running the European Equity Fund, he's um, he's kind of delivered, personally as a manager, he's delivered about 122%. That's versus 114% for the MSCI European uh, MSCI Europe X UK Index and 120% for the sector average for the Investment Association Europe X UK sector. So he's in line with um, kind of peers and the benchmark. However, when you look at Mr. Darwell's record over the same period, he's returned to 105%. So... You can see um, there's a, a bit of a gap there. Okay, and what do uh, fund analysts think about um, Alexander Darwell's uh, forthcoming departure? So the main sentiment is that um, 
there is no manager that could ever really fill Mr. Dalwell's shoes. He is such a popular manager, delivered such excellent returns for investors. But other than that, it's generally quite positive. Um, it's, it's worth pointing out that um, Mr. Dalwell and, well, the Jupiter Fund and the Threadneedle Fund operate on a very similar style. They they both invest in large large cap growth stocks. Some slight differences in sector and stock decisions um, and some concentration as well. So Mr. Darwell takes a lot bigger bets on his favoured stocks, whereas um, the Threadneedle Fund, which is co-managed with David Dudding, they kind of make smaller bets on the same amount of companies, so it's a bit more equally weighted. The concentration and the the bigger bets that Mr. Darwell makes is is a big driver of the the performance difference that I mentioned earlier. It is interesting because Mr. Nichols was expected to take full control of the Threadneedle Fund. He kind of joined Threadneedle in 2016, seen as a long-term replacement for David Dudding, another kind of excellent manager with a long-term track record. So kind of big problems for Threadneedle and that popular fund there. They've got a lot to think about. Also interesting because... A lot of people probably would have preferred a longer handover between Mr. Darwell and Mr. Nichols. So Jupiter have said that Mr. Nichols will join this year. There will be a period, a transition period, undefined, a transition period where they will work together and then Mr. Darwell will step back. However, worth noting, as mentioned, um, that he is still going to be there. He's still going to be running other mandates and still will remain head of European growth at Jupiter as well. Okay. Jason, do you think it's of concern that Alexander Dahl is no longer going to fund Jupiter European? Well, you know, he's had a fantastic track record. We actually own both the Threadneedle Fund and the Jupiter Fund. So where we're actually at on it at the moment is we've we've taken off the Jupiter Fund off our, our buy list pending a, a meeting with the company and, and the manager and the, the incoming manager. And I think there's no that's, that's sort of standard practice for us. So I, I think if you own the fund, there's no need to sort of rush out and do anything immediately because there's going to be a handover period you know there are some similarities so both managers have a a sort of quality growth style bias them they're both around about 40 stock portfolios but actually then when you look at the you look at the stocks own actually there's not that much overlap in top 10 holdings i think there's three in common between the two funds i think the other thing just to, to 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 deliberate is um, Mark Nichols um, started developing a very good track record at BMO. They were very hopeful uh, about the prospects of being able to market him and grow that fund. He obviously went, then went to Threadneedle in 2016 as part of their succession planning. It may be coincidence, but actually that period since has actually been a, weak, a fairly weaker one for the performance of the Threadneedle fund. It's actually underperformed 6 or 7% over that period. That may be coincidental. You never quite know when there are co-managers whether who's really making the, the, the decisions or whether you know one is in practice taking the lead. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot I think to think about. There's undoubtedly you know Alex Darwell's track record um, uh, has been stellar, and it would be hard to find a manager to replace him with quite the same track record. There are options out there. You know, one option could be to, uh, for real fans of Alex Darwell, could be to switch to the um, to the investment trust that he's going to continue managing. I think that will be for a while. Uh, he's actually quite a significant personal shareholder in that trust, so you know his interests are certainly um, aligned with those of investors in that sense. So you know that that could be an option. The trust is. Uh, trading a very slight discount to, to net asset value. So that could be one option. Yeah, I mean, the problem with that investment trust is it's got um, an absolutely massive performance fee on it. So that added on to its, perform- its ongoing charge takes up the annual charges to well over 2%. I mean, is it really worth paying over 2% for Alexander Darwell? Well, obviously, you know, 
I'm not a big fan of performance fee structures, um, and that does. You're right; it does make the trust expensive in terms of its fees. The opposite argument, though, is of course, is what matters is the return net of fees, and the return has been absolutely stunning on the, on that trust. So, um, you know, I, I guess it, it, guess what? It really depends on whether or not actually you're concerned about the charges in their own right, or actually, do you know what? Sometimes, sometimes it is worth paying a, a premium charges if the manager delivers the performance to merit it. What would you say are the main arguments for sticking with Jupiter European? Well, this is a, you know, it's a flagship project for, for, for Jupiter, and you know, um, the heat is on at Jupiter. Jupiter have uh, got a lot of, uh, uh, come under a fair bit of criticism. They've, ha- they've had some outflows. Uh, they've got a new CEO coming. So you know, the, it, within the business, there will be a real imperative to make sure that this is a success. As I say, you know, the last three years at Threadneedle um, has seen the performance on, on the European Select Fund a little bit disappointing, not disastrous in any sense, um, but a little bit more disappointing. But actually, Mark Nichols, you know, uh, in his own right, you know, w- was putting in some pretty good numbers at BMO. So um, c- clearly, the portfolio is unlikely to, to change over overnight immediately. And obviously, Alex Darwell will be there in the background um, heading up the, the team there. For some while, so that's the, I think, the argument for sticking in with it and and um, you know s- s- seeing how the handover goes. Now, if um, let's say you invest are looking to put new money into your fund and you're not already in there. Should you still consider Jupiter European or just steer clear? No, no we, so we, we've, we've, we've suspended it from our buy list for now. Um, so I think if you were making a decision today, you were wanting to put your money in a European equity fund within your ISA by midnight, I'd probably be looking at funds like um, Crux European Special Situations, for, for example. Like, you know, that's got a veteran fund manager. Mm. But is, is he about to retire too? Well, no, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, he... he yeah. uh, he, 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 he sort of um, that's Richard Pease Richard Pease about, yeah. is running yeah. that you know, he, he only went there a few years ago I think um, I think he'll be around for some time yeah that's probably jinxed me though so <laughs> okay alright thank you Jason some great suggestions on Europe there if you want some more um, suggestions on Europe funds other than Jupiter European you can see the IC top 100 funds list online at investorschronicle.co.uk Today marks the end of the current tax year and your opportunity to make use of annual tax-efficient allowances such as individual savings accounts, ISAs for short, and pensions. But the good news is that with the beginning of a new tax year tomorrow, you've got a whole new round of tax allowances for the next 12 months. Now, Jason, investors can use allowances such as the ability to invest up to £20,000 into an ISA over 12 months. But why is an argument for investing your allowance in the first few weeks of a tax year rather than waiting until the last minute um, next March or early April? Look, it's, it's, it's human nature to leave things to the last minute. And in the last day of the previous tax year, the final ISA to be invested on, on the Best Invest website came in at five minutes to midnight. <laughs> so you've had a whole year and you've left it to five minutes to midnight. So you might get where, a few in today. Then, where yeah. a dodgy internet <laughs> connection or anything could yeah. have lost that allowance for good. And I think, you know, naturally people think, phew, gosh, done that. Now I can forget about it for, you know, 10 or 11 months. 
but why not actually get out of that cliff edge um, pressure on yourself to beat the deadline and and invest early in the year? And there's a very, very simple reason why you might consider doing that. One is it takes the pressure out of it. You can make a more informed decision. You can sit down, first of all, look at where your existing investments are, try and identify any gaps maybe in your asset allocation away a week and, that, uh, uh, and then actually use the new investments to plug those holes and create a more balanced portfolio. Uh, that's just common sense. But I think the other reason for investing early in the, t- in the tax year is, of course, mo- in most years, markets rise. Didn't, didn't last year, but in most years, markets generate a positive return. And therefore, the earlier you're invested, the better, because you're going to enjoy many more months of return and, of course, tax savings. So that's another reason to do it early. Actually, I think a really, really good discipline, often seen as something just for the small investor, but actually for everyone, is why not just drip feed your money in throughout the year, whether that's on a regular savings scheme or you know, um, uh, investing in a series of lump sums throughout the year. It's a really, really good discipline for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it removes that, um, the, the risks around getting your timing wrong. There's nothing worse than you know putting a twenty thousand pound check into the market and then a week later the market's had some slide and and even though the long run uh, that shouldn't matter, um, investing regularly just helps you get a more average return across uh, an average entry price across the year. I think the other reason for doing it on a monthly basis it just removes the the uh, impact of emotional sentiment out of your decision making at the moment. There are undoubtedly some of our clients who are thinking, oh, I don't know if it's a good time to invest. I'm worried about Brexit. I'm worried about the global economy. I'm worried about trade wars. Actually, if you just invest every month automatically on a standing order, it becomes as natural as cleaning your teeth in the morning. And that's what should really matter is it keeps you going through the good times and the bad times and actually just takes that kind of distraction of emotion and worrying about current events out of the equation. Okay, and I guess it's if you don't have twenty thousand pounds to hand now, um, but you might, might you you will with your paychecks over a year. It's a good way to absolutely oh, cash flow wise. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, you, you know, twenty thousand pounds is a lot of, a lot mm. of money. Um, you know, or even if actually you 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 invest on a regular basis, what you can, and and if if you're someone perhaps who gets a year end bonus, you can always top up and use the rest of the allowance at the end of the tax year. But I think um, there's a really good case for drip feeding in. Yeah. Well, I mean, are there any other downsides to investing all your eyes allowance in one go at the start of a tax year? I think that the, 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 it, it just inevitably at the end of the tax year, because it is that peak season for me, people making decisions, the advertising from you know fund management companies ramps up. Obviously, uh, uh, all the magazines and newspapers are talking about people's tips for the end of the, the tax year. And so it becomes very easy to get swayed by, you know, tips and marketing and advertising uh, but uh, it, actually what you really need to do is first of all consider well, where, where, where is my portfolio currently invested where am i weak where should i be t- topping up and make a decision that's much more tailored to your circumstances rather than getting swayed by all the attention that investing gets in a, in in that sort of couple of months space okay now we've been talking about isas but just thinking about other types of financial planning are there any types of financial planning that let's be honest probably are better done at the start of the tax year well, I think the one reason that 
people leave often leave things like their pensions and VCTs and uh, and other tax efficient investments to the end of the tax year. Is quite often people don't know how much they're going to be earning across the year because you know for for, for some people a big part of their pay might be you know annual bonuses and, mm-hmm. and the like. So they tend to sort of wait and, and get an idea of you know how how much income tax they might be liable for across the year. But the same principle applies is actually if you can invest regularly in your pension, you're getting that pound cost averaging, you're getting a more uh, average entry price across the year, you're less exposed to sudden you know, changes in, in, in the value of investment. So it still makes sense. Okay. And, I mean, is there any other circumstances where you, you definitely should leave it to the end of a year? No, I think, well, I think, for example, um, if you own investments such as shares or, or unit trusts that are outside of ISAs and pensions, as you know, that um, if you earn more than £2,000 in dividends from those, you will pay tax on them. Mm. So actually, if, if you own those, why not consider selling those within your capital gains tax allowance and, and then either repurchasing the same investment within an ISA, get your ISA done early, or or buy some other investment within the ISA because, you know, why sit there um, potentially paying tax in your dividends through the year? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Jason. Some really helpful tips. That brings us to the end of today's show, but see this week's Investors Chronicle of a website for more Neil Woodford and his funds, Jupiter European Fund and investment suggestions for your ISA. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.